The congregation, please turn to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 5. 2 Samuel chapter 23 verse 5. The title of our sermon is God's Covenant Yet. Let's pray. God, Lord of all, I approach unto thee boldly, yet with trembling, to preach thy word is an impossible task. I ask for thy help and thy aid to benefit from thy word is an impossible task. We ask for thy help. And thy aid. Without thee, we can do nothing. Without thee, our religious duties benefit nothing. But in thee, they are made effectual unto salvation and the building up of our souls. Lord, increase these thy people's faith, comfort them them to see Christ. Help me to see Christ, that my faith would be increased, that we would stand in awe before thee, O God, and thy Son, Jesus Christ, by the power and moving of the Holy Spirit among us. Lord, revival, revival, O God. But we must know, we must know, Help us. We look to thee and thee alone. Make thy word powerful and effectual to our hearts. Holy Spirit, we commit this time to thee. Guard us from error. Apply the word to our hearts and our lives and our minds. Open our ears, our hearts, and our eyes. And the Lord rebukes Satan from taking the word as it falls. May it be good ground, O God, good ground. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> God's covenant yet, that's the word that he speaks. Second Samuel chapter 23 and verse 5. David, nearing the end of his life, says these words. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. Dear congregation, as we know, we live in very uncertain times right now in our day. Very uncertain politically, economically, religiously, and every aspect of our current society, we see uncertainty. 
And even if this were not the case, that currently we are seeing uncertainty, we know, we would still yet know, that there are very few certainties at all in life. Death is one of them. Death. That famous Puritan John Rogers, nearing the end of his life, said, O death, next to Jesus, thou art my best friend. As certain as he was in Christ, he was certain that death would be the door that led him in. But all men know, all men know, that one of the few things they can bank on is death. That's why life insurance exists. Death is certain. We shall all die. Not all shall be rich, but all shall die. Not all shall be wise or prominent, but all shall sleep in the grave. The rich man and the poor man shall be neighbors in the cemetery. All who come forth from Adam's loins follow his path into the heart of the earth. That we can be certain. And though all of us shall die, and all shall die, not everyone shall meet the same kind of death. There are some who are privileged to die with the full possession of their mind intact. Full possession of their mind. And they're able to enter into and through death's doorway, fully, fully aware of the very moment that they do. We call these scenes deathbeds. Deathbeds. Some of us here have even been present, have even been present at a deathbed of a loved one or someone close to us. The words spoken by a departing loved one who is in full possession of their faculties and their mind is truly cherished by those who hear it. Virtually nothing can make a man, virtually nothing can make a man more brutally and soberly authentic than his deathbed. Than his deathbed. A man who is at the brink of death and is aware of it shall not waste his last breaths. Therefore, Therefore, he will speak those things which truly reveal his heart. A man peering into eternity, about ready to hop over into the abyss, of everlasting shall likely say things that equal it in sobriety and truth. They may be words that we hear on a deathbed from a loved one that are words of departing comfort and tender love to family members. Sometimes they're confessions of unspeakable crimes, outward expulsions of emotional pain and inward turmoil, and regret. Silent whimpers of hopelessness are sometimes heard. Or open re- repetitions of praise and glory to that blessed saint's God. Whatever the words may be, they give us a rare look into the inmost being of a man, and they're profitable for all of us to study. They're instructive. The heart of man is always instructive. It's one of the books God has given us. The scriptures, nature, and man. Many infidels have had their last words preserved for us 
in time. And what they said is instructive on their deathbed as well as shocking. The famous 18th century French Enlightenment philosopher and critic of Christianity, Voltaire, uttered these as his last words. Some of you might be familiar. His last words on this earth were, I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus Christ. And he died. Our Lord's own betrayer, Judas Iscariot, said these famous last words moments before he went out and purchased a field with his own blood by hanging. He said, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. Matthew 27, 4. These are just two pictures of many, many, many recorded deathbeds of infidels. Some say silly things, hopeless things, nonsensical things. Words of wisdom, knowledge. Words of comfort and love and hope. But all of them equally die, Christless and in their sins. How horrible it must be to be in the full possession of your mind. And to die, Christless. To know one's own death, that it is upon you. And that it is a death in sin. In rebellion against one's creator. What a fearful sight indeed to look upon. The deathbed is a place for a man to reflect. To reflect. And reflection must be a painful business if the only thing you can reflect upon is regretful and hateful sin against God. But the believer's deathbed is something far different. In his reflection upon his life, he sees the one who is his life itself reflected back upon him, Christ. The scriptures tell us that the believer's deathbed is to God a very tender place. In Psalm 116.15, the scriptures say, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. The Christian may look upon his life from atop his deathbed just like any other. And he may, like other men, see many regrets and many sins. But he will see that Christ is greater than them all. Greater than them all. Few things are of more benefit to us than to study the final words of God's faithful throughout the ages. They die like all others, but unlike them all. In hope do they die. They lived in Christ and they died in Christ. The great hymn writer who wrote The Rock of Ages, Augustus Toplady, spoke these last words while upon his deathbed at age 38. He said, I enjoy heaven already in my soul. My prayers are all converted into praises. Before leaving his mortal frame behind, the great Dutch Reformed dogmatician Herman Bavink said this, All of my dogmatics profit me nothing now. All I have is my faith in Jesus Christ. Since we are all certain that we shall likewise die as all men do, let us labor, dear congregation, to die 
in the best frame that we can. How often do we think of death? Are you prepared? Do you prepare every day to die? One of the best ways to know whether some amusement that you're deciding to entertain yourself with or some sin that you would like to indulge in is acceptable to God or not is to ask yourself this. Is this what I would want to be found doing if this was the last hour of my life? Would I want to be watching a movie? Playing a board game? Playing video games? Indulging in some sin? Is that what I want to be doing if I knew that in one hour the trump would sound and I would go to Christ? That's the guide. That's the question. So we must labor, since we are certain that we are going to die, to be as certain as possible that we will die in the best spiritual frame. If we could choose, would we die with prayers of faith and praise upon our lips, or while in the midst of some fit of unfaithfulness? But as useful as it is to study the final thoughts of great saints of the past in literature, in our text today, before us, dear congregation, we have the deathbed words of an inspired author, King David. Upon his deathbed, David had much time to consider where he had failed and where he had succeeded. Where he had failed and where he had succeeded. To find God gracious in the former and God the origin of the latter. That all of his failings were covered by the gracious covenant God, Jehovah. And all of his successes were due to that same Jehovah. Sustaining him and empowering him. Knowing the life of David as we do. This is truly a captivating passage of Scripture, this entire chapter of his last words. In his departing thoughts, we find again these precious words in verse 5. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. So looking back on a long, And fruitful life, wrought with perils, difficulties, temptations, tragedies, and grievous sins, David brings to mind his God and his God's faithfulness. Yes, he recognizes his sin, but he spends more time in this verse adoring his God's graciousness and glory. In our text today, we will make three observations. First, Deathbed laments. We will look at the deathbed laments of David first. Second, God's covenant yet. His covenant yet. Third, and last, the believer's view of the covenant. First, deathbed laments. Notice the imperfection of the saints who partake in this covenant of grace. David, looking back upon his long life, while on the very precipice of eternity, must say, although my house be not so with God. His legacy, even as the great David, is not stainless. It was full of sins. It was full of compromises. It was full of cowardice, selfishness, unfaithfulness, and blood. 
no matter how faithfully we live to God, dear congregation, we shall all have our own all those. David had an all though, and we have many all those as well. Above all of our legacies when we die shall be written although. Although we are saved, yet in sinful struggles did we remain. Although Christ saved us by his blood and gave us a new heart, we did not retain it in perfection. Although he remained faithful, we did not. God's covenant is made with sinners. It's a bilateral covenant. He makes the covenant. He decides to save and decrees to covenant with a sinful people. It's amazing. The covenant does not rest, therefore, then, upon our faithfulness, but upon God's. Upon God's. The only word we have to offer to the covenant is although. That's what we can bring to the covenant. And although. Many althoughs. We are in perfect and sinful parties, brought into a holy and perfect covenant, instituted and kept by a holy, perfect, and faithful God. 2 Timothy 2.13, Apostle Paul writes, If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. Although we deny him, although we are faithless, God remains faithful in his covenant. A true believer knows that the only thing he can bring to the covenant is a sinful life. That's it. That's all we can bring. Every day we live as Christians in covenantal all those. Although we have sinned, yet we are saved by faith in Christ. Although we were once rebels, God has made us friends. So whether upon the deathbed or before we approach the Lord's Supper or hear some other ordinance, partake in some other ordinance of means of grace, baptism, the hearing of the scriptures read and preached. Before we approach these things, the only thing that we can contribute is an although. Although I am a sinner, I may yet sit under the preaching of God's word and approach the table. That's what we offer to the covenant. Romans 5, 8. But God commendeth his love towards us, In that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Although we were sinners. That's what we offer. What does he offer? His love is demonstrated to us in that while we were yet sinners, although sinners, Christ died for us. Notice also on this deathbed lament, regrets of past sins. David here lays dying, dying before the Lord. He knows he is going to die. A young virgin is brought to him to lay in his bed and keep him warm because he's an old man and his blood no longer flows. He is about to die. Here he lays dying. He does not mention his many triumphs as a warrior king. He doesn't mention how the Lord delivered him out of the hand of his enemies time and time again. He doesn't mention how he conquered many lands by God's grace, by God's power. He doesn't mention Goliath. But he only mentions briefly here his failings. Although my house be not so with God, 
So as he laid here, when he surveyed his own life, looked upon it as upon a great mount surveying the valley of his life, the hills and valleys of his successes and failings. He lays dying, surveying. He could only hear Nathan's words still uttering in his ears, ringing, Thou art the man. That's all he could see from himself. Not his great deeds, not his great doings, not his final justification. No. From our perspective, David was leaving behind a very large and prosperous and successful kingdom. But when David looked at his life, he could only see that he had left behind, behind him many sinful transgressions against his God. His house, meaning his legacy, his house, meaning his own children and wives, were but all those upon his legacy in the covenant. They were contradictions to the grace he had received from God. Although a receiver of Jehovah's grace, yet he spat upon his face. Yes, our great David, the one from whose lips streams of the most sublime praises and statements of God's faithfulness, loving kindness, mercy, had flown out in the Psalms and other places, could only look upon his legacy and his children and say, although. His children, his wives, his kingdom were all pierced through with his unfaithfulness, rebellion against God, bloodshed, betrayal, and transgression. So much so that David was forbidden from fulfilling his greatest desire of making a temple unto the Lord, his God. Although, He desired to make a great house for his God. His hands were too sullied with bloodshed, adultery, murder, lying, deceit, pride, to be able to accomplish the work. God forbade him. Truly, in view of his life, all David could attribute to himself was that although he was redeemed by God, he yet had an unclean life, unclean lips, and was an unclean man dwelling amongst a people of unclean lips and hearts. Such are the regrets of every true believer when surveying their life, is it not? Even the great apostle Paul had all those placarded above him. Romans 7, 18, 19. He says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not that I do. That was a divine, contradictory although in his covenant with God. All regrets are also reconciled. We have to remember that. This is why David and every true believer looks to the covenant of grace again and again. All of our regrets, the sin which we hate, which clings so closely to us, are dealt with in the covenant-keeping God, Jesus Christ. In looking upon your regretful sins, dear believer, keep an eye upon Jesus, the great covenant keeper. As Paul did, Romans 7, 24 through 8, 1. He says, 
and surveying. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That is our plea, our regret, our lamentation, and yet our hope. Our very sins, dear believer, our very sins are our very reason to look to Jesus. A right view of them sends us flying to Christ Jesus for refuge. I think of this often. The angels do not get to call Jesus their Savior. God is not their Savior. They're not purchased by his blood, but we are. What a privilege. Now to apply David's deathbed lamentation for his past sins, let us be spurred on, dear congregation, to not put off taking a view of our sins until our deathbed. Don't, take, don't wait to take inventory of your great misdeeds. Think upon your sins here and now. This will serve not only to humble you before God and be more receptive of his grace and his mercy and his love and find more joy in it, but it also will serve as a restraint against future sins before they are committed. Remember Cain, who was warned by God himself in jealousy over his brother Abel, that sin was lurking at, its, at his door and his, des- his desire was for him. He did not heed that. He procrastinated. I don't have to think about that now. And what was his end but death? James reminds us of the end goal of sin. James 1, 14 and 15. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So, let us take an eye now of our sin. Inventory. See the regrets of the past. Are all those, and how they are beginning to stack up, that we may then see God's covenant yet. Second, God's covenant yet. God's yets and God's buts precede his shalls and wills. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul writes this about our state as humans. As Christians, and you hath he quickened or made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, that is Satan, among whom also we all had our conversation or lifestyle in times past, and the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. God's covenant steps in. We offer although. And he says, yet. We are dead in sins. And he says, but. That's the covenant of grace. That by grace are ye saved. The covenant is God's prerogative. Notice 
David's wording. It says, he hath made. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made. He hath made. If God hath made it, what fear do we need to have, dear believer? How much time do we waste? Do I waste in doubt whether I am truly loved of God? How much time do we waste thinking about the things of this world and temporal niceties and pleasures to distract us? When true joy, true happiness, true lasting satisfaction is before us in the person of Christ, but we can't bring ourselves to come to him because we don't believe that the covenant is truly with us, that he hath made it. And if he hath made it, it truly is for us. It's God's doing. Can you undo the work of God? Can you pull back the omnipotent hand that works? No. What doubt can hold fast before it? None. Shall God fail in his purposes? Indeed, he shall not. Let's look next at David's words of personal application of this covenant. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me, with me, with me. And this is the difference between dead orthodoxy, which so many reformed Christians are guilty of, and living, experiential, practical Christianity. True faith. True faith. True faith can say, true doctrine says, with me. Dead orthodoxy only says, he hath made. And stops there. We are seen as extremists, or we're seen as getting riled up. If you say, Jesus died for me. I am saved. And even as you say those words, how often is it hard to really say that? We will gladly talk all day about what Christ has done for those who believe. And we'll even say we believe. But how hard is it sometimes to say those words? To confidently look somebody in the face and say, Jesus Christ saved me. I am purchased and bought by his blood. And I am going to heaven where I shall dwell with him forever and reign in the new Jerusalem. In the heavens. The new earth. The new heavens. Be raised from the dead. I am saved. I am Christ. That's hard to do. Very easy to talk about doctrine, to talk about the doctrine of salvation, but to have that personal application. He hath made with me. He hath made with me. I have had many conversations with non-believers where they're telling me they don't believe, and I say, I don't know what to tell you. I know God has saved me. Jesus Christ has saved me. I am his. I am purchased with his blood. He has given me his Holy Spirit, which is in me now. Personal application. What good is it to just say he hath made a covenant with believers? If you not say following and live following after that, he hath made a covenant with me, for I am a believer. Experiential Christianity does not leave truth at the door but welcomes it into the home and makes it part of the family. It embraces truth and lives with it. God has not only made a covenant with his people, that is well and good. But the Christian can say he hath made a covenant with me. How hard it is to apply this to ourselves. We must learn to do so and ask for faith 
to do so. This is true faith. And this is true encouragement. Take, for example, John chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, Jesus' words. He says to Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the context again. Nicodemus coming, talking about doctrine. He's a teacher in Israel. And yet he does not know these things about the new birth. Christ's whole point, Jesus' whole point in speaking with Nicodemus in this interaction is personal faith, regeneration, the new birth, application, not just doctrine. What's Nicodemus recognizes through the deeds and teaching of Christ that he is truly a teacher of, who has come from God. But what he doesn't understand is the new birth, the spirit giving life. So we can say, for God so loved the world. We can say that whosoever believeth upon him, whoever looketh upon the Son lifted up, shall be saved. But have you looked? Is he yours? Can you say that he is truly yours? David could. He hath made a covenant with me, David says. In spite of his many all those, God had made a covenant with him. Notice also, that it is an everlasting covenant. Yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. What does everlasting mean? It means lasting forever. Everlasting. That's what it means. Eternal. From eternity to eternity. And this places it, as if we needed any more evidence, completely out of our hands. It was never our, our idea. What was our idea was to sin against this gracious God. Was to sin against him. That was our idea. What was not our idea was salvation through a covenant of grace wherein the Son, the only begotten Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is given as a sacrifice on behalf of rebellious sinners. So this places it completely out of our hands. We do not have the covenant title deeds themselves, if you will, the original documents. Those are safe with God. But we have copies. We have a copy of it, of the title deed, of this great covenant. But the original is kept in God's hand. Spurgeon often told people, so I often tell people, it is not your holding on to God which saves you, but God's holding on to you. Look also at the assuredness of this covenant. It says, yet he hath made a an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and sure. The assuredness of this covenant with us. We are saved and we are saved completely and entirely. There's nothing left for us to do. Nothing left for us to add. Remember that the teaching of final justification, so popular in our day in Reformed circles and New Calvinist circles, which teaches basically this. It's Roman Catholic in its origin. Jesus gets us started by faith. We are saved. By grace through faith we are saved in the election. And then as we live through sanctification, 
as we do works and good deeds, we are finally justified. And it flows out of initial justification. There's two stages to justification. Original and final. So someone who holds to final justification cannot believe that the covenant is everlasting, can they? That it is sure. An Arminian cannot believe that the covenant is everlasting or sure. You could be a Christian today, fall away tomorrow, and be a Christian again Thursday. That's not sure. The Roman Catholic also cannot say this. That's why we reject Rome. That's why we reject final justification that some Reformed people have embraced wrongly, and why we reject Arminianism. Because we reject Rome, and we embrace the true gospel. Jesus prayed to the Father, do you remember, before his death, saying this in John seventeen four, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Then what did he say when he died on the cross? It is finished. The covenant which he hath made with us is sure, is sure, ordered in all things. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, that means he has accomplished it all. It's done. It's not in our hands. It's also an orderly covenant in all things. It's God's plan, and God's plans do not fail. And he's ordered every aspect of it. That's how we study covenant theology from Genesis through to Revelation. We can see how God has revealed progressively the covenant of grace in Scripture. And now us, we have the whole thing and can study it. And see God's gracious dealings through the covenant of grace and its various dispensations throughout the Scriptures, throughout history. It's orderly. He's ordered all its parts. He didn't come up with an idea of salvation. And then when it came down to it, say, oh no, I've missed a part. Who's going to apply this thing? Holy Spirit. Let's see if we can get the Holy Spirit involved. This is not how God operates. Our God is one. The agreement of the triune Godhead in all things. He didn't leave out parts of his covenant. If he knew that he would do it, chose to do it, decreed to do it, it shall be done. And it was. It's orderly. He has ordered each aspect, all things that were necessary. There's nothing left to accomplish on our side. It is finished. We don't have to figure out how many good deeds we have to do after we get saved. How much repenting we have to do. None of that is necessary. That is heresy. Plain and simple, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Good deeds and repentance flow out of a saved heart. They are not requisite for one. If you ever preach a gospel to somebody, a non-believer, and they tell you about all the horrible things they do, and you say you need to repent of those sins and clean your life up, you've just preached a false gospel. Are we trying to make more morality here? Or Christianity? Do we want Christianity or morality? The covenant of grace offers Christianity, regeneration, God's people, his elect people, not morality. Again, part of the reason we're in the predicament we are in this country is because the church preached morality. And 
side by side with withdrawing from society, when it did preach anything, it preached be good. Clean up your life. Then come to Jesus. No, come to Jesus. You will be born again and will be a new creation in Christ Jesus. And you shall repent of sins. You shall do good deeds because God has remade you. How easily we get confused by the simplest of truths. In all of its aspects, for all of his people. He didn't lose any of his sheep. When it's ordered in all things, all who shall be in the covenant, the covenant was made with them and was completed and sure. He shall have them all. He's jealous for his people. He will not miss a single one. What would we think of a mother who forgot one of her children at the grocery store? Not very much, would we? God is not a neglectful parent. No. He is sure and steadfast in all his dealings with his covenant children. And he shall have them all. He shall have them all. John seventeen twelve in that same high priestly prayer, Christ prays to the Father, says this, speaking about his people. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. And none of them is lost. None of them is lost. Not one. Not one. What does he say also? In John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And verse 25 to 30. He says this. Jesus answered, I answered them. I told you and you believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. I'm not going to fall away. He's not going to forget one of his sheep. He holds them all. He's a faithful covenant God. Third, the Christian's view of the covenant. How shall we then view it? Look how David viewed it. Yet he, had made, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. First, he says, it is all my salvation. There is salvation in no other way. The covenant constantly speaks to us like this. It cuts off every hope outside of itself and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The covenant ratifier. Acts 4.12. Peter said, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So a true Christian, we cling to the name of Christ. We cling to Jesus himself and take him as ours and say, he is all my salvation. The covenant is all my salvation. Where else shall we look? We say, as we sang earlier, I trust not the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Trust nothing else, but hope in nothing else. Look to no other covenant, no covenant of works, no covenant of repentance, no covenant of Bible reading, no covenant of church going, but the covenant of grace founded, ratified, sealed, and fulfilled in Christ alone. That is our hope. The reason I chose this as my theme and prayed over it 
Because we need to hear this time and time again, especially in these uncertain times. You shall die, and a covenant has been made in which you now possess eternal life. Dear believer, thou possessest eternal life now and here in Christ. Where else shall we look? Look with the eye of faith. To where? But to Christ. What is easier than to look? Isaiah 45.22 says this, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. What else, shall, what else is required? What is easier than to look with faith upon the one who fulfills the covenant for us? Notice he also says, it is all my desire. What does he mean by that? Other than God is all his desire. What is the covenant of grace other than God himself? God is the covenant of grace. He is the covenant of grace because it's made with himself, first and foremost, in the pactum salutis. And only secondarily to man. Who is the object of the covenant of grace. So God in the covenant is our desire. God is the sum and substance of the covenant. Other places, David spoke throughout his life. Psalm 27 verse 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, he said, that I will seek, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He desired God. So again, as we've touched on so many times, and even in this sermon, that works, salvation, nonsense, that distinction so unnecessary, so contrived and fake, the whole discussion. This man in the covenant, all of us men in the covenant, desire God and desire to please him. Just like any human covenant except perfect. The covenant we make with our wives and that we make with our husbands, we desire to please them. We desire them or else we are not keeping our covenant. How much more the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God over all, our Lord Jehovah, King of kings and Lord of lords, who hath made a covenant with us. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, David says this, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Forever. If you are a true believer, you have felt that. That longing, passionate desire for God. That you wish the very fabric of creation itself would be undone and taken away in a fire. And you could just have God alone. Your heart itself beats and pants for God. That's what matters. Not how many works you have done. From that, from a heart of love and passion for God, will flow all of your covenant faithfulness. Any covenant faithfulness you have can only flow out of that. Mere determinate morality shall not. No ethic, but Christ. A heart for Christ. A love for Christ. He ends this way. And so do we. That though in this life... This covenant 
may not appear to grow in prosperity, yet it is sure and everlasting nonetheless. Our hope is not in this life, not in this world, in its trinkets, but in God, but in Christ. Though David had many failings, though his family was in ruins, rebellious children that died fighting against him, wives and children that were unfaithful to God, country divided and at the brink of civil war. That's what he left behind. So it appeared that aspects of the covenant made, the physical aspects, were not his yet. He did not see them fulfilled. Although he made it not to grow, yet this covenant was all his salvation, was all his hope, all his desire. Hope that is seen is not hope. We hope for what we do not yet see, but we hope indeed. In this reading this morning, John chapter 4. Jesus comes out from talking at the woman of Canaan. And there's a nobleman whose son was sick in Capernaum. In verse 47, it says, When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus saith unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. That was it. He heard the word that Jesus said unto him, and he believed. He didn't see, he had no proof that the son was made well. He simply believed the word of God. He believed the word of Jesus, that it was so. So too in the covenant, though we see many misfortunes happen to us in this life, though we have hardships and trials, and sometimes it seems that everything is against us, and even God's hand itself, we walk through that veil of death, the shadow. Yet, we believe the word that is spoken to us in the covenant. Jesus Christ, the ratifier and substance of the covenant itself. So do we believe Do we believe? Are we in the covenant? Dost thou, O believer, see God's yet in your all those? If so, thou hast great reason for comfort, for bravery, certainty, and assurance. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again come before thee, O God. All of our hope is in thee. Thou art all our salvation. Teach us to trust in thy covenant mercies and grace and love. We thank thee and praise thee. In Jesus' name, amen.